Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. It's September 13th. Corporate debt issuance is back and stocks are off their lows, yet all-in yields are at 10-year highs. I'm Rob Schiffman, and welcome to this month's Bloomberg Intelligence Credit Chat Podcast. With us to provide the answers to some of BI's most asked questions are a slew of our global all-star analysts, including our U.S. retail guru, Mike Campalone, Stefan Kovachev, our European industrial analyst, will focus today on the shipping industry, and staying up late for us via Singapore, Rena Kwok, who will give us the good, bad, and ugly on Singapore banks. There are so many angles and names to discuss. This should be a, a ton of fun. Uh, why don't we start off with retail, since I'm currently shopping for my fall collection. Hello, Mike. Hey there, Rob. So um, retail, man, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it seems like this is an ever-changing sector. Um, you know, the entire dynamics um, are completely different than they were just a handful of, handful of years ago. Um, it's hard to know who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's going to survive. Just give us a start us off with with a little bit of a big picture overview. There's just been so much uh, in the news recently. Um, give us a quick catch up on what's going on in your world. Yeah, totally, Rob. Um, absolutely right. Uh, plenty of news. Um, you know, this month, back to school, back to the bond market is really um, what we've been seeing. So nice. we saw multiple high quality retailers tapped the bond market uh, earlier this month in September, um, including Walmart, Lowe's, uh, Home Depot, Dollar General, Target. Um, those five retailers alone issued almost $17 billion um, in early September, which is about 35% of year-to-date uh, retail new issuance uh, and pushing our total um, to almost $50 billion of new bonds sold across IG and high-yield retailers so far this year. You know, just breaking down some of the highlights uh, from um, from each offering, you know, Walmart's $5 billion deal um, is really pushing its debt load closer to a $60 billion record high um, as the company's cash needs continue to grow, driven by buybacks, which may be as much as $11 billion this year, um, and CapEx, uh, which may exceed $16 billion this year, um, or a 60% increase uh, versus the roughly $10 billion spent two years ago. Um, Lowe's, another $4.75 billion of bonds sold. Um, and the company also borrowed another $2.5 billion under its commercial paper program, um, pushing its uh, lease-adjusted debt load uh, to a record high at almost $41 billion, um, and adding more cash to its, uh, to its war chest to really support its uh, $12 billion buyback program. And Home Depot yesterday um, tapping the bond market for $3 billion of new bonds, um, which we expect a majority of the proceeds will go to its uh, share repurchase program. Um, it's aiming to support, or it just uh, launched a $15 billion share repurchase program that we think uh, um, is going to drain up some of that cash. So it, it, sounds um, very, a lot, it sounds a lot like my tech space, right, where they don't necessarily need the money, but they're borrowing to help support the stock. The, the difference, though, seems like, at least in tech, you know, there's so much excess cash, it's almost like they don't, they don't know what to do with their money, so they return it to shareholders. But in your world, like, equities have, have absolutely plummeted. Or, like, is, is there a lack of investment going on in, in these spaces, or are they just big enough and 
business is still strong enough that there's so much free cash flow that this is going to just be a continued theme of returning returning capital to, yeah. to shareholders. Yeah, it's a good point. I think during the pandemic, a lot of these uh, of retailers across IG and high yield just completely paused uh, shareholder returns. So this is a little bit of a catch up. We're seeing uh, CapEx definitely pick up from lower levels over the past two years. I'm really to support um, digital investments um, and omnichannel investments, um, but still, uh, still for some names, especially in IG, uh, CapEx investments higher than uh, what we saw pre-pandemic, but still a little bit of catch-up in there. So um, I think a, I think a combo a combo of both, but ultimately, you know, debt being issued, we're seeing absolute debt levels rise across all of these names. So um, credit quality deteriorating. Um, and cash being used for shareholder returns instead of debt repayment. Gotcha. And what are some of these demand supply dynamics? I thought like, you know, these these equities got pounded because they were sitting on inventory for stuff that they just couldn't sell, like things like TV. So you head into a recession, you know, and people buy clothes and food, but they're not buying, you know, new refrigerators or electronics. You, you mentioned back to school. Is that going to be like a huge boost? Because, um, you know, there's millions, tens of millions of kids going back to school and they, they need they need new supplies. Yeah. So back to school is always an important time for many uh, of the subsectors of retail, um, you know, ahead of earnings, which just finished up a, a couple of weeks ago for us. We were hearing consumers were planning to cut spending across, you know, multiple types of categories, including sh- uh, shoes and clothes, um, electronics, um, and craft supplies. Um, you know, names that we were watching, particularly um, selling some of these products were Best Buy, Dick's, uh, Kohl's, um, just to name a few. Um, but so looking at, at company commentary um, after earnings, um, the tone from some of these names was a bit more positive than we uh, really uh, expected. Uh, Best Buy said that back to school scales uh, were slightly ahead of their tempered expectations. Um, and Dix actually raised its guidance for the year based on a strong Q2 um, and mentioned multiple times how pleased they were uh, with their current inventory position. Hmm. So potentially not as sharp of a pullback in consumer spending for some of those names, um, but definitely still something uh, still something to monitor. Interesting. And And what about relative value? I mean, there seems to be this enormous barbell, super high quality names, access to low cost capital, you know, but, but, but trade pretty tight. And then an entire slug of names that I wonder, I mean, just from the outsider looking in is, are they going to be in business next year or, or in three years? What are, what are investors supposed to be doing? Yeah. So, you know, zooming out so far this year, the um, Bloomberg US dollar IG retail index has slightly outperformed the Bloomberg IG index on a, on an excess return basis, um, while the high yield retail index has significantly underperformed the Bloomberg high yield index. So similar trends that we um, that, that we saw and that you and I discussed, uh, you know, back in June. Um, but, you know, there's definitely some um, um, specific storylines going on across uh, individual retailers in high yield and um, in, in IG. Um, so, you know, one of the names in, in high yield we had pointed to um, was Nordstrom um, and their long bonds. I think the last time we chatted on this podcast, which were trading about 60 bips wider than a similar Kohl's um, investment grade rated note. Um, and that this um, this was a spread relationship we were saying uh, earlier this or earlier this summer um, that we thought could could reverse. 
Um, you know, looking at that relationship now, um, Nordstrom's bond is 70 bips inside of, uh, of that Kohl's bond um, and still 100 bips wider than the historical tight. So, um, you know, if Nordstrom can, um, you know, uh, reduce execution risk um, with, in terms of its rack business, um, uh, we, we think that, that that spread relationship uh, could, could compress further. Um, you know, on the investment grade rated side, Target is a name um, that we absolutely, like others, shifted to more of a negative tone on earlier this year um, as a result of its inventory missteps. Um, you know, that Target's bond due in 2030 now is trading um, or traded at spreads last September that were in, that were in line with higher rated Walmart, uh, similar, uh, similar notes, but now trade over 30 bips wire. So, you know, I think Target is still uh, a show me story now. Um, uh, just given the missteps uh, that the company had earlier this year. So um, uh, definitely some unique storylines going on in retail for some names um, across the rating spectrum. Um, but, you know, overall um, uh, return trends um, are similar to what uh, uh, you and I talked about in June. One, one, one last question just before we, we go on to Stefan is that you've been like all over this, this excess inventory issue. Um, and the statistics that you've been able to highlight um, with with inventory levels being up, you know, massively um, is the, the, where does that lead us to in terms of a couple of names that you, you might not like? Are there just are there a few names out there that, you know, you think people should be avoiding? Yeah. And, and so this this narrative with inventory and uh, our retailers overstock um, has definitely gained a lot of traction over the past couple of months. Um, just looking at the the, the numbers um, um, straight on, inventory levels across all high yield or the, of the major debt issuing entities of um, high yield retailers and investment grade uh, retailers, um, inventory is about 40% higher than the three-year average. Um, some of the names that we've kind of pointed to um, are Crocs, VF Corp, Home Depot, Target again, uh, and Kohl's again. Um, but it, it's important to remember when you're looking at inventory numbers, um, some, uh, some of the drivers behind what you're seeing recorded on the balance sheet. Um, Kohl's gave us some color um, based on their year-over-year -year increases um, in its inventory levels that some aren't really necessarily bad. Uh, Kohl's said Q2 inventory increased um, almost 50% year-over-year. But excluding these unique factors, inventory increased only 27% year over year and declined actually 8% versus 2019. Some of this was in transit inventory that increased um, as the company gave additional transportation time to make sure that they had inventory in stock for consumers. Um, they had excess inventory from um, their Sephora and Beauty um, uh, uh, initiative where they're planning to launch 400 new Sephora shops um, in 2022. And then also these like pack and hold strategies, um, which were leveraged to really um, make sure that um, uh, some, uh, some inventory um, for the Christmas and holiday season, um, like sleepwear and fleece, um, uh, was available, uh, uh, available to the company and um, able to be put out on shelves um, uh, when that holiday season came. Um, so just an important distinction, just like you want to make like obviously higher inventory levels is important and something to monitor, um, but being able to decipher between an increase in units um, or just an increase in dollar prices or cost of inventory um, is, is an important point to gotcha. kind of distinguish. Gotcha. Interesting 
a little shift in more positive tone from you. And listen, just remember when it comes to Kohl's, I got I got $5 of Kohl's cash burning in my pocket. Look out for uh, expandable waste jogger sales in, uh, in 3Q as the shiftments head back to the stores. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right, let's get to uh, let's let's get to uh, what what might be the biggest issue uh, in in the globe when it comes to getting uh, you know these goods and services to people. Um, Stefan, the, the the shipping and container business um, has been on fire the last year or so. I mean, um, demand has been has been ridiculous. But listen, people can't sell stuff if they can't get the stuff. Um, what what exactly is the latest in the container shipping world? It seems like um, as we're gonna as we're heading into somewhat of a recession, like do, do these ships get stuck in ports? Are they going to be filled? Is there going to be a, a a supply chain concern? I mean, um, where where do we stand right now? Uh, hi Rob, thanks for having me. You're absolutely right. Container shipping companies have thrived in the last two years, but uh, clouds are forming on the horizon. So maybe stepping back, just looking at the pandemic, what happened is that um, uh, people shifted their spending from services, from going out or traveling to buying more online, be it buying furniture for our living rooms or tools for our gardens. And those are often delivered by container ships from across the globe. So a big increase in demand for container shipping during the pandemic. And on the supplied side, there is only about 6,000 container ships in the world. And it takes two to three years to build a new ship in order to add capacity. So limited supply and strong demand led to container shipping companies charging up to six times more to bring a container box from China to, let's say, Long Beach. Um, so one of the companies we follow, Maersk, the number two in the industry, generated more EBITDA in the last year than the previous five years combined. And another one we follow you know, generated more free cash flow in a year than the previous decade. So overall, a very profitable environment for container shipping uh, companies, Rob. But you're right, looks like uh, Outlook is not that good uh, going into next year. How, explain those dynamics to me just a little bit, though. There was so much conversation about um, supply constraints that with COVID, you know, you couldn't get various supplies to make finished goods, whether it was a car. Anyone who ordered a piece of furniture in the last year might have been waiting for a year. So this you're saying that even though there, there might have been supply constraints, it still didn't lead up to empty ships. In fact, they were just overflowing. Um, and now we're going to start worrying about excess capacity as, as demand declines. That's that's what we're seeing? Uh, well, yes, that, that's, um, that's why we call the shipping industry a super cyclical industry, not just a cyclical one, because, uh, um, you know, it takes two, three years to actually build the ship and put it online Got you. and um, the, the cycle is basically as now these companies do have the cash they're ordering the ships and the ships are coming online uh, they've ordered them last year actually so ships are coming online in 2023-24 and this is you know when the economy seems to be you know slowing and uh, there might be a big gap and empty ships, as, as you're saying as well. So that's a big risk for the industry going forward. So is all that cash spoken for? Has it been uh, put away in order to um, get new ships? Or are they 
returning cash to shareholders, like like Camp was talking about in the retail space, it, mm -hmm. would, it would sound like the, these these names would be uh, flush with excess cash. Oh yes, you're absolutely right. And um, actually, the, the companies have been relatively disciplined in terms of cash distributions. We've had. Uh, you know, Maersk distributing 10 billion, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but uh, uh, 50, it was up to 15% of its market cap, actually. But overall, the big picture and looking at, uh, you know, the last couple of years and the dynamics, uh, they have also reduced debt quite a lot and purchased new ships as well, as, as you were mentioning. So the actual order book of new ships stands at about 30% of the current fleet, which is quite a high level compared to pre-pandemic levels, maybe three times pre-pandemic levels. So overall, a very disciplined approach. Um, and I think companies simply know that it's a cyclical industry and that, that you know, the outlook is, is turning, is worsening. So I think that's why overall they have been more more disciplined uh, in this uh, in this cycle. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So it's, it, it, you know, from your writing, it certainly looks like um, you've gotten more negative on, on, on on the space and is that just looking into your crystal ball seeing that you're you're predicting there's going to be um you know recessionary pressures or we're heading into a recession and that there's just not going to be anywhere near as much as demand as there was the last couple of years oh they, they, they are quite a lot of um uh, indicators on the terminal, be it, uh, you know, recession odds being at 50% uh, for the U.S. or 60% for, let's say, Germany here in Europe, um, or, um, you know, high inflation rates, of course, but um, macroeconomic volatility, etc. But I think at the end of the day, it's um, very much demand-driven. So if, um, you know, if people are, you know, have already their work from home set up, they don't need a new monitor or a new desk. Um, so they wouldn't be buying it, whereas a year ago they were. So uh, weaker demand for finished goods, I think, is key. But also the supply side of the equation is also normalizing as ships are being delivered and there's more available capacity on ships. So if we look at the, on the terminal, we have uh, data updated each week on uh, container freight rates, so the price it costs to bring a container, let's say, from Asia to the U.S., and rates are already down 50% from their peak, uh, but they're still up 300% from 2019. So it, it does look like there may be some more weakening um, as fundamentals deteriorate, uh, which could be good for us and consumers, uh, but not so good for um, the shipping industry. So it seems like this is always going to be a problem. Like if you're a super cyclical, you're always going to end up building too much um, mm. and then ships are going to be empty so if that's the case uh, you know do you go from cash rich um, un a little unsure of what to do with their cash to any of these names at risk of, of um, potentially even defaulting like how bad can it get for the space mm. well, well you're right uh, space is very cyclical and from a credit uh, viewpoint um, let's say we, we cover one French company, CMA, CGM, that 10 years ago was rated triple C plus, and now it's rated double B plus. So a six-notch upgrade just shows you the cyclicality of <laughs> the amazing, industry. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's a very fragmented industry. But the bottom line, I think, is that 
um, in a fragmented industry, the bigger players, the ones that do have outstanding bonds that we cover, that we look at, uh, those can actually afford bigger ships. And um, the more, the bigger your ship is and the newer your ship is, it consumes less fuel per container. You have less costs per container to operate the ship. So I think the smaller players, and there are quite uh, a lot of players with under 1% market share, about 50% of the participants. So I think the smaller players are more at risk uh, and not so much the, um, the bigger players uh, this time around at least. Gotcha. Listen, it's it really is an amazing space, and it gets um, so much attention on the terminal. You know, anyone who's interested in in, in global supply demand uh, dynamics, Stefan is the guy to go to, who can point out to to you like, you know, all, where all the numbers are, and then um, his research is just amazing, digging down into the into the details of of winners and losers. So so thank you, I appreciate it. Um, let's move on to Rena. Hi, Rena. How are you? Hi Rob, I'm good. How about you? Oh, thank you so much for for joining us uh, so late. Um, listen, you cover a, a a ton of of Asian banks, and I'll tell you, it's it's hard enough, I think, uh, for most people to understand um, which banks are better positioned than others. You throw in Asia risk, and uh, it gets even that much more complex. Um, you've written uh, a ton of stuff recently on Singapore banks. And it seems like we're people are getting more worried about, um, you know, mortgages, uh, rising borrowing costs. Uh, you know, it, it just seems like a major, major headwinds are approaching relative to say some U.S. banks who, um, you know, the general conversation here that that Arnold talks about is um, how financially secure they are, and this is not 2008. Maybe you could start differentiating us uh, a little bit between like what's going on in Singapore, what are the specific examples, um, and in particular, why, why why is this mortgage issue such a big issue? Sure, Rob. Now, the reason why we are focusing on Singapore is largely because Singapore is a small economy and we are highly trade-reliant. That makes us very vulnerable to the macro headwinds. Now, that being said, now with the increased macro headwinds, what do that bring about for the Singapore lenders? And for the Singapore banks, mortgages actually comprise a I would say a sizable share of their loan portfolio. So it's actually a point uh, it's worthwhile to focus on them amid the rising rates that we see. So where, you know, um, Stefan talked about how you could look at like uh, recession percentages around the globe. Like what what are the current thoughts on potential recession in Singapore and what would that mean for mortgage losses? I think we have written a note to talk about, you know, in our BI scenario, worst case analysis, Singapore banks could actually face very modest credit losses for mortgages, about, you know, one to two billion in sing dollar if the nation enters into a recession. Now, if we look into the Singapore banks, their average probability of default, you know, have been uh, fairly resilient, I would say. Uh, they have actually stood below uh, 3% throughout the credit cycles, given uh, the tight risk control, the loan-to-value ratios, as well as the macroprudential measures we have in place in Singapore. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so when it comes to banks' capital, um, you, you, you're saying that um, the, the downside risk from a a default project is really small. What does that mean, though, from a bond perspective? Does that mean that uh, you know 
bonds are going to be well protected or there's still potentially a lot of pain as they go through these mortgage losses? I mean, that's a good question, Rob, because if you see the Singapore lenders, one of the key credit strengths is their robust credit reserves. Now, in our scenario case, uh, scenario analysis, we actually ascertain you know, what could be the potential impact of the capital buffers in the event, let's say, a recession hits. And we are expecting uh, their core capital to still remain robust about 13 to 14 percent 0.5% in our worst case scenario analysis. That is still really robust, I would say, for the uh, lenders, and that could actually support their dollar tier two performance. Okay. Okay. So from um from a uh, a bottoms up perspective, um, you know, who's most and least at risk of a potential recession? I mean, that's a really good question, Rob. As always, who's at risk and who's uh, probably uh, less impacted. Now, we actually think OCBC mortgages could be most impacted among the peers and why so. If we take a look at the average probability of default of OCBC mortgages uh, rated under the bank's internal ratings model, it has actually risen to about 2% in the second quarter this year. And this is actually modestly above the pre-pandemic level and the highest among its peers. Now, if I am to contrast that, you know, DBS mortgages credit quality could actually remain peer leading. Now, on the flip side, DBS mortgages probability of default stood at low 0.5% in the second quarter this year. And this is comparable to the pre-pandemic levels, despite the increased headwind that we have seen since the onset of the pandemic. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um... Now, what about the rest of the, you cover a lot of other regions, um, you know, Indonesia in particular. Are, are there similar issues there? Are there different dynamics that, that, that people need to worry about? Yeah, I think, you know, Indonesia is one of the countries that actually benefited from the commodity uh, tailwinds that we see. But, you know, what are the potential pain points that could be a risk for the bank's uh, asset quality? Now, we actually think the Indonesia real estate sector, which could be pressured by the rising rates as well as the increased inflation and currency risk, could bring some stress to the risk profile of the nation banks. Gotcha. Listen, I... I... I love doing these things because I, I get to learn so much. It's it, it, I, I read a lot of of your stuff and, and camps and Stefan's, um, but I really you know you end up feeling the tone so much more from hearing it. And it, it's interesting as it seems like everyone seems to be worrying a little bit more about the world, uh, at least from a credit perspective. Uh, all you guys are a little bit more positive than uh, than you probably were a few months ago. So. Um, phenomenal conversation. Um, I really want to thank our best-in-class analysts for joining us uh, and for all of you for listening to our BI Credit Chat podcast. If you need anything from our team, feel free to reach out directly or, as always, simply access the credit research dashboard at BI Cred. Stay happy and healthy. 